the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Balance of Nature's fruit and veggie capsules contain 100% fine-ripened fruits and vegetables, tested pure with no pesticides, fillers, or additives of any kind, and are the most effective whole food supplements on the market today. You might ask, how can over 10 servings of 31 different fruits and vegetables fit into six vegetarian capsules? Fruits and vegetables are on an average 85% water. Balance of Nature uses cold vacuum technology to remove the water, leaving only the whole food. We don't use Use any heat, air, or light drying methods that damage nutrients. Our cold vacuum technology maintains 99% of the fresh fruits and vegetables' original nutritional value. Along with diet and exercise, Mother Nature provides fruits and vegetables to help us maintain good health. To order, go to balanceofnature.com or call 1-800-246-8751. That's 1-800-246-8751. Use the special promo code PODCAST. In a culture as politically polarized and aggressively tribalized as ours, how do people change their minds? I'm Georgie Borman, a mother, author, and cultural commentator born and raised on the West Coast. I want to know what we can learn from people who've been on both sides of contentious issues, whether they end up on the right or the left. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the 180 Cast. Hello, welcome to the 180 cast. I'm your host, Georgie Borman. This is the podcast dedicated to changing minds, and you've tuned in to another breakdown session where I talk about news and the big ideas behind them that impact you. I break down and analyze highlights from the 180 cast interviews, which are every other week, as well as listener comments sometimes and debunk some conventional wisdom. So I'm going to go start off with the top story, which is what everybody's talking about, which is the recent shootings in Dayton and El Paso, which resulted in 31 people dead total, 22 in one case, and two dozen injured, and um, nine people in another case. Just a quick recap. Um, The El Paso shooter had no apparent warning signs that he was going to commit something so horrific. His firearm was legally purchased, just like the other guy. And this is from CNN. A manifesto proclaiming white nationalist and racist views, believed to be written by the shooter, was posted on 8chan, also known as the sweaty groin of the internet. It's the worst place on the internet absolutely ever. Less than 20 minutes before the first 9-11 calls came in, the four-page document rails against Hispanics and immigrants, blaming them for taking jobs away and the blending of cultures in the U.S., unquote. As far as the, the Dayton shooter is uh, concerned, it said, um, this guy had a lot of warning signs, a lot. Former high school classmates recalled how the shooter kept a hit list of people he wanted to kill or rape. He also fronted a quote-unquote porno grind band, which is a totally new word to me, and sang songs with graphic violent lyrics said. Authorities searching his family home found writings 
that expressed an interest in killing people to law enforcement sources told CNN, unquote. This guy killed his own sister. So everybody, of course, is talking about gun control because the, the far left tends to force this issue every time a mass shooting happens. This guy killed his own sister. Do you think that the accessibility of guns can drive you to do something like that? Do you think that if, if that particular rifle hadn't been available, that he wouldn't have committed this act? Do you think that this is just a matter of, of convenience? That, oh, he's just feeling so angry today, and because this rifle is right next to me, I'm just going to go kill nine people and my sister. Highly improbable. In fact, I know it's not true. Of course, you know, aside from the gun control debate, there is this debate surrounding the ideologies because one of these guys is apparently from the far, far right. If you can call white supremacy on the far right, just, you know, that's how everybody's labeling it. And the other guy is on the far, far left who's a lover of Antifa and said that the guy who um, firebombed the ICE facility in Tacoma, Washington which is just around the corner from where I grew up, that he's a martyr. And so there's that conversation as well. Of course, most people are just content to say, oh, why isn't the mainstream media talking as much about this guy who's a leftist as they're talking about the guy who's on the far right and is a white supremacist or anti-immigrant or whatever, racist? You know, and that's, you know, that's a valid point to make. Um, but I want to make just very few points here, just some bullet points that I think are helpful in uh, understanding this situation a little bit better and cutting through the fog. Number one, sin nature is real. Everybody has a sin nature. People do evil things. Not everybody does commits evil to the same ex- extent, but we are all essentially capable of it. Really, evil comes when you give people enough of an excuse for it to manifest. Number two, ideology in itself isn't that dangerous. If somebody writes a a white supremacist manifesto, that in itself is is not going to cause people to die. It's, It's when there is a clearly defined target, political target, that people will act on those political motivations, people who have violence in their heart, people who have discussed violence with other people who share this ideology, let's say, on 4chan. Of course, you know, there's also the sort of violence that happens when people are in a crowd, and especially when they are covering their faces so nobody can see who they are, and they get all riled up at at protests and things like that, and then they commit violence that way, and, you know, they throw rocks through windows and assault journalists and things like that. You know, like, what's happening, what's happening in Portland, for instance. But other than that, ideology in itself isn't that dangerous. Conspiracy theories in themselves aren't that dangerous. Um, you might have seen recently that the FBI classified some conspir- conspiracy theories, including QAnon, as um, something to watch out for in terms of domestic terror threat. And, 
you know, I think the reason that QAnon is in- included in that is because not necessarily that it directly advocates violence, but it has specific targets that are being attacked verbally and are being claimed as, you know, enemies of the state. Um, you know, Hillary Clinton and her henchmen are supposedly pedophiles and, and things like that. So there's political targets that are being attacked verbally over and over again. And that is a huge problem because once you have a defined target, let's say on the left, you've got, you've got um, ICE, right? ICE are the Nazis suddenly almost overnight. ICE are now totally Nazis. There's no nuances to the parallel at all. They're totally Nazis and they're running concentration camps. And if you don't do something about that, well, by gosh darn it, you're complacent. You're just as bad as them. So you can see how that would be a problem. That's really, really a warning sign that we need to watch out for when people start solidifying their ideas of when they're, when they're zoning in on who exactly is the problem and they're labeling things that are labeling them as fascists and, and dictators and Nazis, um, things like that, that elicit very strong emotions. In addition to people who already believe that in some cases, violence is the answer to achieve their political or cultural ends you're very likely going to have violence on your hand. Um, The other thing is, a lot of the times when we are talking about these mass shooters, people talk about mental illness and how we need uh, better mental health care in this country and that this is sort of an alternative policy presentation besides gun control that a lot of people feel would make more of a difference. And in some sense, that may be true, But it is important to be realistic and you can't just sort of throw this out as, hey, well, it's not gun control. It's actually the fact that they're mentally ill because it takes a lot, even if you were to reform laws across the country, which, you know, is not even constitutional to it takes a lot to commit somebody to psychiatric psychiatric care. They have to be a serious danger already to themselves or others. And for somebody to simply be obsessed with conspiracy theories or obsessed with Antifa or any particular ideology, um, or even if they're, they're writing that they want to kill people, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're mentally ill. So there's that. But even if somebody is uh, not right in the head, I don't think that that completely lets mass shooters off the hook either. Um, you can have evil intent intent in your heart and also be not quite right in the head. Now, if somebody says that, you know, if somebody's actually delusional and they're seeing and hearing things that aren't there, that are compelling them to do things because it sort of makes sense in a weird way in their own world that they're experiencing, that's different. But these, most, most of these people are not like that. So in, in addition to those bullet points, it is just based off of that. I don't think that it is accurate or helpful to use what the politicians um, often throw out there, this term senseless violence, or even worse, they'll say it's a senseless tragedy because a lot of times they don't want to, you know, 
um, hint one way or the other how they fall down on the policy thing. So, you know, a lot of people on a lot of Democrats will say it's it's gun violence. So they'll they'll call it gun violence and identify guns as the primary problem. Um, a lot of people who aren't Democrats and who believe in this in maintaining the Second Amendment as it stands will say something like, "Oh, it's just senseless violence." Oh, you know, you just you just wake up one day and it's like you know drawing a number from a hat. You know, this week thirty one people are going to die from senseless violence. That's not how it works either. And I think we do everybody a disservice by taking attention away from the fact that people sometimes do evil things, that there is evil in this world, that it will be here until Jesus comes back. And again, there is evil in the heart of man, and it only needs an excuse to manifest. I spoke about this um, when I wrote about infanticide and that's when this conviction really solidified for me is that everybody has some innate potential to do really terrible things and like we're going to talk about um, later in, in the podcast we'll talk about this as well when it comes to victimology and really you just need an excuse to say oh it's okay it's it's fine you know you're so angry and these people have wronged you so much that it's, it's, you can go out and, and act on these urges and kill people because that's, that's your right. You just need an excuse. You need a rationale for, for why you're going to do these things, which is why ideology is a big part in this whole conversation about violence. And it's a much bigger part than the weapons that are being used. It could be a bomb. It could be a knife. It could be a gun. But at the end of the day, when you have a clearly defined political target and you've been riling people up on the internet and saying violence is the answer, you're, you're going to have a mess on your hands. It's more than a tragedy. It's, it's evil. And by the way, this is fundamentally at odds with this idea that evil is primarily responsible, that the individual is responsible. That's, that's at odds with the way that the left sees the world because in their view of reality insofar as they believe in reality, um, individuals are never really responsible for their own actions. It's always society's fault. And, you know, society let them down, and that's the, the biggest problem. It's the system. Blame the system. And so I don't think that this is just about scoring political points. You know, a lot of people say, oh, that's so callous. That's so terrible that these Democrats will will take this opportunity in the face of tragedy, you know, 1.2 milliseconds after all these people died and, 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 and talk about changing gun policy. But I don't think it's necessarily just about um, taking advantage of the situation for your chosen, for your, you know, preferred way of changing the laws. I really think that this more is more about worldview than we're giving people credit for. Because if you're on the far left, if you subscribe to that view, it's always, it's never, it, it's, it's never the person's fault in themselves. They're not the primary motivator. There's always something else. So the question isn't whether it's the person who's responsible for their actions or something else. It's what is that other thing that is responsible, that if we could change things and just tweak the way that we're doing things this way and that, then we can prevent these things from happening. 
It's more about worldview than we think. And this is just one of those cases. So moving on. Okay, let's talk about interview highlights from episode 20, which was my interview with Dr. Sarah Newcomb, who wrote the book Loaded Money Psychology and How to Get Ahead Without Leaving Your Values Behind. I really, really enjoyed that conversation. It, and it is an excellent book. I read the whole book. It's very good. And I read the book because my husband, Cody, was reading it, and he couldn't stop pestering me about all of these different parts of the book that he highlighted and bookmarked and, and wanted me to read. Very good book. Um, it, she basically talks about how she changed her mind about money fundamentally and the morality of money and explains to people how she has, you know, gotten ahead, not in the sense of getting uber rich, but in being financially secure without leaving her values behind. And so there's a lot of really interesting research in this book. It's extremely well researched. It's very accessible. I do encourage you to go read it. Um, I asked Dr. Newcomb about privilege theory in this interview, and she sort of hints hints at, you know, this idea throughout the interview, but sort of in a different way, because she said she grew up in a conservative religious household, and, and, and it was a household that really thought money was a huge problem, that money itself was immoral. And I think you can find that in, on the, the far right and the far left as well. So it sort of applies to both ends of the spectrum. But she talked about how she finally came around to understanding that money itself isn't immoral. So I'm going to play that really quick. The big thing for me was recognizing that by creating value, by doing something valuable for my community and for a company, I no longer feel any guilt about earning a good salary because I feel like that, that, that whole stigma that I used to put on wealth, I was able to understand that it's just, I, it was just wrongheaded. I yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't unfairly gained. Yeah. So she finally realized that what she was earning wasn't unfairly gained because she was selling her labor at a price and her labor was worth what she was getting paid. And I really think that this applies to the way that the social justice um, advocates think about wealth. Because the way that social justice advocates usually think about wealth is that it is unfairly gained simply by nature of the fact that you can get it, that you can become wealthy. There's something fundamentally unjust about that, according to many people who subscribe to privilege theory. I mean, almost everybody who subscribes to privilege theory. Now, Dr. Newcomb does identify as a social justice warrior. She says she's a proud social justice warrior. But I think that this is absolutely fascinating, the way that she thinks totally differently from the other social justice warriors, and that she doesn't see selling her labor as something that's fundamentally immoral. And she doesn't see that she has anything to be ashamed of for doing that, right? Because people who subscribe to privilege theory would say, 
this is not only is it unjust that you can gain so much money, but the only reason that you are able to gain so much money is because you've been privileged. And the fact that you've been privileged is just fundamentally unjust. And not only is it, is it wrong, but the fact that you're privileged is directly oppressing somebody else. That by you rising up and being able to gain wealth, you are actually stepping on somebody else's neck who can't get there. And, and there's seriously a problem with that. How are you supposed to, to live life with that? But that you know brings us to a question, which is the social justice warriors are, are constantly saying that we need to tear down, tear down the capitalist system because capitalism is the problem and capitalism is the engine of oppression and that kind of brings us to the next soundbite, which is um, how she sort of changed her mind on on the effects of of seeing yourself as a victim. When people allow themselves to internalize an identity as being victimized, which is so common, right? Because we are so us and them. We love us and them. It's simple. It's easy. Um, but if you allow yourself to believe that you are the victim of someone else's will, ill will, then people who do this, people that allow themselves to identify as being a victim will then accept from themselves and the people around them behavior that they never would have accepted otherwise. We justify doing terrible things to each other if we think someone has done something terrible to us. Victimology is a license to oppress other people. Fundamentally, that, that is what it is. And it is ironic, but that's not the, the way that they think about it. They think, oh, I'm rising up against oppression. You know, I am a, a victim of this class or that demographic or this race or this income bracket or whatever. And if I want to overthrow the system and do things differently, then there's, there's no way that I could possibly oppress somebody else by advocating for a socialist revolution. This is just fighting for freedom. And that is a, a very, very dangerous mentality. It's, it's not just that conservatives often complain about people seeing themselves as victims, but it's not in the way of, oh, you need to grow up. Oh, you're just a child. Or at least it, it shouldn't be that. It shouldn't be, um, oh, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. The real problem with victimology is that it does give people a license to do things that they would otherwise see as immoral because they've been wronged. If you've been wronged, then you can exact that same amount of force or pressure or pain onto somebody else that you perceive that you're feeling. And this is even more dangerous when you don't believe in any sort of objective reality and you don't believe in, in objective morality because you can really make reality into anything that you want. You can see yourself as much of a victim as you want. And where does that, where does that leave us? We have millions of young people on college campuses that are being taught this exact ideology that there are certain classes of people that are being victimized, that are being oppressed by other classes of people. 
And if you are in that class, it doesn't matter what you personally feel about the situation or what you personally believe now. Just by nature of the fact that you have a certain skin color or you grew up in a certain neighborhood and your parents drove a certain car, you're an oppressor. And I'm going to talk more about this in just a second, and this sort of segues right into the Woke of the Week, which is a segment I do that is either a tweet or a story about somebody who is so, so woke that it's just awe-inspiring. So today's Woke of the Week is a tweet from Rosanna Arquette, who is an activist and an actor and a director and producer That's what her bio says. Her bio also says, resisting fascism on a daily basis silences complicity. So now you know where she's coming from. This is her tweet. I'm sorry I was born white and privileged. It disgusts me, and I feel so much shame. Shame. Disgust. Those are the feelings that are elicited by white privilege theory, by privilege theory in general. Wokeness is the only religion in which there is no means of salvation. There's no way to save yourself because your problem is something that you can't do anything about. You can't change your skin color. You can't change your past. It's guilt and repentance forever. So there's neither grace nor earning your salvation and Honestly, I do believe that this is a means of breaking young people down and reducing them to cogs in a cruel machine. That's what they perceive, you know, capitalism to be so that they can be rebuilt as warriors for socialism. That's what wokeness does. I mean, whether or not that's a happy um, consequence of privilege theory or whether that is part of the reason why it is taught so aggressively on campuses, I can't say for sure, but that's what wokeness does. It breaks people down and says, you're terrible. You won't ever stop being terrible because you're fundamentally a part of the oppressive system. If you're white, you're oppressing somebody else. You don't have a choice in the matter. It's just the fact that you're white. It's just the fact that you grew up in a nice neighborhood, a nice, safe suburban neighborhood, and your parents had two cars. Maybe there's a pool in the backyard. That's what makes you terrible. Your past makes you terrible, and there's nothing you can do about it. There's no way you can turn away from it because it's built you into a part of the oppressive system. So... Here's the the apparent good news, though. Here's the gospel of the social justice movement. You can feel slightly less terrible. You can assuage, is that the word? Assuage, assage, your guilt by self-flagellating and tearing down, especially, this this is the key part, tearing down people who look like you or who were raised in similar circumstances. And, of course, of course, subscribing to every finer point of the postmodern neo-Marxist catechism, the, the catechism of privilege theory. Okay, so um, that includes all of the intersectionality, all of the, the ideology associated with transgenderism and, and uh, 
sexual quote unquote freedom and banning guns and restricting free speech, all of those things, especially, especially free speech, you really can't be for free speech because that is a means of oppressing people. So you can't be for that. You definitely have to subscribe to that. Again, privilege theory, the social justice ideology, is a religion in which there is no means to save yourself. And from my perspective, it's very hard to understand why anybody would subscribe to this. But people are being convinced of this wholesale on campuses. And, you know, if you don't have a grounding in in objective reality, if you don't have a grounding in the scriptures, if you don't have a relationship with God, I think, it, I mean, it is fairly easy to get knocked over and told that this is the way it has to be. Anyway, side note, it looks like Rosanna Arquette locked her Twitter account because that tweet just blew up. She has nearly 90,000 followers. I seriously doubt she's giving a personal invite to all of them. But moving on in the debunking conventional wisdom category, if you are around my age, let's say you're a millennial, you are, of course, much more likely to have tried marijuana, marijuana products, and to be pro-legalization of marijuana. Did you know that you can have withdrawal symptoms from marijuana? Did you know that marijuana has addictive qualities, even though it's not physically addictive? It is strongly habit-forming to the point where you can have withdrawals from it. So this is from a, a study I found, an article I found about this. Um, the, the current favored model of drug addiction proposes that repeated substance abuse drives neurobiological changes in the brain that can be separated into three distinct stages, each of which perpetuates the cycle of addiction. And the authors found that this three stage, three stage framework, which is binge intoxication, withdrawal slash negative effects and preoccupation and anticipation, um, this framework of addiction applies to um, cannabis use in a manner similar to other drugs of abuse, albeit with some slight differences. Withdrawal, in case you want to know what the symptoms are, is marked by the loss of motivation towards non-drug rewards and impaired emotional, regu- emotional regulation. Hmm, sound familiar? Typically, symptoms of cannabis withdrawal occur one to two days after cessation of heavy use, and they last about two weeks. The most common symptoms observed are irritability, anxiety, decreased appetite, restlessness, and sleep disturbances. So I was curious what people who have been through marijuana withdrawal actually say about it. And Reddit is a great place to look into things like that because Reddit is full of support groups. And I did find some interesting testimonials. Um, One guy said he had really weird dreams. He said it was almost like going into an acid haze. And there are lots of other testimonials. But this is the the testimony that really got me, that really convinced me that heavy marijuana use is a problem. I mean, not not everybody necessarily who uses marijuana heavily is going to, to end up having all of these symptoms, but some people will. He said, um, 
at this point to my experience before this, he, he wrote a post titled um, something like, I almost lost my life because of marijuana withdrawal, something like that. He said, I would wholeheartedly disagree that marijuana withdrawals could be dangerous. Weed can't be bad for you. It's not addictive like nicotine or, or harder drugs. It doesn't directly cause any negative health effects. Have you heard any of these claims before? Because I have. It doesn't have hangovers like alcohol. It's the perfect drug. And to a certain degree, I wasn't wrong. But that's precisely the problem. Weed is too great. So great that you can hide behind it and avoid every other bad thing in the world. So he decided that he would quit the week of midterms, and he succeeded, but he said something was very, very off. I, sh I was showing all the classic withdrawal symptoms. The most glaring one was the intense anger burning inside of me. I was an uncontrollable loose cannon, and I also suffered terrifyingly realistic nightmares that scarred me in the morning and gave me more anxiety. So he said he, he ended up getting drunk and he said something snapped inside of me. I told my roommates, I don't want to live anymore. I'm jumping off our residence hall. They tried to get me to smoke, he writes, but my anger was so intense that I threw the glass bowl against the wall and it shattered. He made a beeline for the roof and said he would have jumped off if his friends hadn't forcefully restrained him. He reevaluated his life while in the hospital he said, why would I act that way? I've never been suicidal before outside of a fleeting thought. The only conclusion I could come to was that marijuana withdrawals actually gave me enough anger to end my life. He said, since that day I haven't smoked, the experience left me with no desire for marijuana ever again. It's been almost two months and I never want to go back. My emotions are back, my productivity is back, and my anxiety is almost completely gone. Hard to argue with that. So a word of caution to people who are, are heavy users of marijuana, that is a possible consequence. So before I sign off, there is a, I do have a quick note on an upcoming 180cast interview episode. It's an extremely contentious topic, and both I and my guest will be approaching this from a Christian worldview. That is my worldview. If you've listened to my other episodes, you can probably tell. And so I'm just going to be upfront about that. I don't see any need to contort myself into a pretzel to make secular arguments for things I derive from scripture. And I know I depart from a lot of my conservative colleagues in that regard, but that is how I approach things. And if you want to call me a Bible thumper, that's, that's fine. But, you know, as a matter of fact... Um, deriving our arguments from scripture is one of the things we'll be talking about in the interview. So if you're not a Christian, I, I do hope you still listen. If anything, I think it will give you a, a deeper understanding of where your, your Christian friends and family are coming from. And, you know, if my guest is Christian, whether it's this guest or some other guest in the future, I'm not going to ask him or her to appeal to secular sensibilities um, just because we have a mixed audience. I want people to be completely authentic in how they're approaching the situation and um, what things really change their mind. So that's that. Remember that you can leave me a voicemail at 323-999-1802. I would love to feature listener comments on the podcast. You can ask me a question or share your thoughts 
or share a 180 story of your own or vent and tell me how horrible I am, which is probably going to be a voicemail that I get after this next episode comes out. Anyway, 323-999-1802. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at 180cast. And you can also like our Facebook page at 180cast. You can give the podcast a review on iTunes if you like it. As I have said before, it is deeply meaningful to me when people leave reviews for the podcast. And it really does help a lot in helping the podcast get more exposure to other people so we can grow our community and have super awesome conversations and maybe change each other's minds. You can, of course, follow me on Twitter, also at Georgie underscore Foreman, where I plan on politics and culture and say controversial things. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. Executive produced by Kevin McCullough. Music by Ruthie Kraft and Joachim Nordenson. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.